This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by the book Letting Go, How I Failed Gay Conversion Therapy and Learned to Love Myself by Aaron Simnowitz. In this book, I take the reader on my journey as I navigate the controversial divide between the evangelical church and homosexuality. At 19 years old, my Christian faith and obedience to Jesus was the most important thing in my life. However, my attraction to other males tested my loyalties, as I believed I only had two choices, either choose Jesus and deny my sexuality, or choose my sexuality and denounce Jesus. In letting go, I hold no punches as I explicitly tell my story with relentless vulnerability, showcasing the emotional pain, anguish, and frustration, yet humorously engaging the readers simultaneously. This book gives readers just one example of a life that was tortured by gay conversion therapy and how it is possible to come out on the other side of self-acceptance. You can pick up this book at Amazon.com right now. So you're thinking to yourself, man, I wish I knew of an author who could give me some new metaphors, you know, some new ways to approach my faith. Someone who knows what the heck she's talking about. Someone who has some degrees, who's been in the largest of churches, who is now intentionally in the smallest of churches. A pastor, a mom, someone really cool. Oh, yeah, I think I've got the person for you. It's Meredith Miller, and her new book is called Woven, Nurturing a Faith Your Kid Doesn't Have to Heal From. Strong subtitle. Yeah, sometimes subtitles, they're not the greatest. Other times they kill it. I think Meredith gets right to the point and kills it. So if you're a parent living in this weird white nationalistic political Christian times we have going on here in the West, and you're trying to figure out how to raise your kids, and you still like Jesus, and you still have respect for faith, I don't know why you wouldn't, like right now, rush to her Substack page and sign up. Search for Meredith Ann Miller on Substack or search for Kids Plus Faith. You'll find her there and pick up the new book on Amazon or your favorite digital retailer. Yeah, it's good stuff. And I'm really glad she's here with us today. So we'll hear from her in a moment. But hey, first, just a heads up. If you've been listening to this podcast on SoundCloud, unfortunately, we're moving away from that platform in a couple of weeks. I don't know all the reasons why SoundCloud won't accept the RSS feed from Simplecast, but now I'm uploading to Simplecast because I'm a part of the Choircast slash Pathios Network, and they've asked us to move over there for a variety of different reasons. Podcast is still happening, being fed to all the other major players, so you just need to jump on what? Obviously, Apple and Spotify, Google Music, which is, no, Google Podcast, Amazon Music, which is really just Audible, those kinds of places. It'll still be there, but I probably won't upload separately to SoundCloud, which is cool. You guys can just jump over. I just wanted to make sure you knew that if that's been your platform of choice. Anyhow, yeah, find us on the other platforms. Subscribe, like, review. Man, we need a good review. We've been in a drought with reviews lately. Does no one even care about us anymore? I don't know. Sad. Okay, what's not sad is the work that Meredith Miller is doing. I'm really glad we got connected and had this conversation. So let's get into it. And a reminder that the book is Woven, Nurturing a Faith Your Kid Doesn't Have to Heal From. Did I mention? I like the subtitle. Thank you. 
send me. We'll do all of that. Yeah. But I think I came across you um, maybe a year or so ago. I can't remember. I think I think it was on the Substack page. And um, as I have lots of, um, well, young people compared to me now, like, you know, late 20s, early 30s, lots of friends with young kids. And, and one of the questions has just been for several years now as we've, uh, lots of us have been kind of reformulating our faith and journeying through all the interesting land of Christianity in our world these days is basically, yeah, how to parent, what's the best way to approach all of this? And anyhow, so I'm, I've been on the lookout, uh, always on the lookout for people who I think are healthy and have some good things to say. And uh, so, yeah, and then I found out about your book. I picked up Woven. It's brand new, right? It is. It came out just a couple of days ago. It's a really beautiful cover. Thank you. I like it too. I mean, it's really cool. Um, and the whole web thing, I mean, it's, uh, well, it's kind of a mundane compliment, but it's also super important. So I understand that. It's I like a super that. mundane image, but I think that's part of why I was so drawn to it. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to say the image was mundane. I meant the no. comment was mundane. Oh, your book cover oh. is cool. I thought just the idea of a web as a metaphor. It's no, not, no, it's no, a no, commonplace no, no. one in a good way, you know? No, no, so. sorry. I didn't mean to okay. say that. That's a terrible oh, way to no, start no. a podcast episode. <laughs> that's all right. We're going to, we're going to do great. It's only up from here. That's right. It can only go up from there. I hate your book cover. Now tell us more about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. Well, speaking of, yeah, tell us more about yourself. Where do you come from? What's your background? Why are you writing about this stuff? Why do you like it? You know, I am. Yeah, I'm a Southern Californian and uh, have spent all my life here minus five years uh, in the Chicago area. Five winters. That's how I know my count. And um, I was someone who was interested in church ministry early in my life, went to a Christian college, studied religious studies, went to seminary, met my husband there. And we spent about 15 years in various mega churches of various sizes. And a lot of that for me was kids and families. And then the five Chicago years, I was curriculum director for Willow Creek, which is probably the most known of the mega churches I've happened to be part of, and was really part of a team that was changing its entire curriculum paradigm. Uh, collectively. I was a big part of it, but I was not the only one who wanted to see that happen. And then in 2019, we came back home to Southern California, church planted, not something we expected in our story, but it's been lovely in so many ways. And in the midst of sort of settling back in, and especially as the pandemic meant churches were trying to figure out how they connected to their parents. Yeah, nice time to when, start a church plant, 2019. Right? Yeah, Before right. We had, yeah, we had six months. We were in our backyard as a dinner church, so that didn't translate. Um, and in, in the midst of parents getting stuff home from churches, that was when a lot of my background, I have friends who always, they were perfectly nice about my job, but they didn't care <laughs> what I did until they were trying to figure out what to do without church available to them. And of course, as many of us know, you play out the rest of 2020. And for many people that broke church for them. Mm. And then they're here with their kids, but they're not going to go back to that community they thought might be a certain way or play a certain role in their family's life. And so that's when me being able to write and Instagram being a great space because it's short, it's accessible, it's free. You know, I really liked that stuff and it all kind of came together. And so now my book came out this last week, which hopefully is another fun resource for people. And yeah. yeah. 
I think it will be. I think it's a solid resource. I haven't read the whole thing, but I have read much of it. And um, I'm really glad that I have. So some good stuff. Uh, where are you at in SoCal? We are inland of Los Angeles by 30 minutes, give or take, in Pomona. Okay. okay. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. That's a, I love that whole area. Um, yeah. It's a little crowded for me. But other than that, it's a great yep. area. It is. It's real full, but I love California culture, right? Yeah. Like so many of us end up in places and it's like the sense of place, the culture of place, the communities, those things. I All of that, like I, the, the food, the people, the multilingualism, the all of it. It's just, yeah. I love it. And I didn't realize the church planning thing. So that's a common denominator as well. I've planted three churches over the years and was interacted with a handful of people at Willow Creek over the years. And uh, even interviewed a couple of different times on different things. And for a variety of reasons, we, we, we were in Arizona most of the time, but now back in uh, Kansas City. But anyhow, so yeah, we got a lot in common. That's cool. Yeah, a lot of overlap. Yeah. Well, um, tell us a little bit about um, the working metaphor for the book is like the spider web, the web versus the wall. And if I haven't already... Uh, uh, you know, ruined the episode by saying what <laughs> by I said. By calling it mundane. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, I'd like to retract all of that and say, mm-hmm. I like that metaphor. How'd you come up with it? And uh, what what does it mean? So I don't totally remember how I first got introduced to the idea, but my guess would be a philosophy professor in seminary it was probably the beginning of talking about the metaphors that help us think about how we know things Mm -hmm. and what is that process like? Mm -hmm. And she was a postmodern philosopher and talked a lot about how much modernity is wall-based, construction-based metaphors for what we know, that there's a foundation that is irrefutably true. You build upon that foundation brick by brick with other things that are also irrefutably true and that you'll end up with a wall of belief systems that are unshakably strong because every single bit of it is true. And her point was more and more as we understand not only the world, but even just brains we don't learn like that. We don't build what we know like that. We don't live out of construction metaphors. It's webs, it's tangles and threads and interconnection and combinations of different kinds of learning that are experienced or read or heard about communal and individual and that it's much more layered together than that tidy construction thing. And Then you fast forward, and one of the things that I have found fascinating about a spider's web is that literally it is known for its strength and its resilience. Mm -hmm. While looking very delicate and gossamer, the reality is that it is an incredibly well-suited habitat in which a spider finds home and nourishment and protection. And MIT once studied why. Their point was that its ability to flex under stress was the source of its strength. And when I think about how people are sharing stories of reimagining faith or feeling like what they thought would work is really not and why, one thing that seemed important was the metaphor we would use because what people feel like is they're standing in the rubble of a house that toppled because the bricks weren't true and you take out too many and the wall can't stand. 
And what they're afraid of is that they're going to have to try and teach their kid how to construct something firm when they ain't got it in them anymore. A web can be a different sort of way to consider what we're crafting with our families and in our own lives, that we anchor to things that give us strength. And then we weave interior threads that are like entirely our own based on who we are and our family is. I had not known before this book that literally every spider web is entirely different from another, like a snowflake, even when they're like the ba same basic form. And there's umpteen different shapes of them. So the cover features a, a orb web. It's the most classic one that we picture, but there not, are tangled not webs and funnels. At all. No. <laughs> <laughs> there's something lovely about the idea that our faith is more like a web than a wall that it flexes under stress, that it can accommodate change, that it is uniquely suited to an environment, and that we're not all trying to follow one blueprint where you and I look identical. We're weaving webs, anchored to who God is, but uniquely our own. Yeah, I think as far as metaphors go, it's like a 10 out of 10. And it so suits our day and age for, for everyone, not just parents and raising little people but for all of us too. And just to be reminded that what you just said, I think is so accurate. We built this thing on these, <laughs> these presuppositions that we thought were a certain thing. It was never really about the presuppositions. Um, presuppositions are great as far as they go, but you know, context matters and things change. And so if you have a web, the other thing I like about it is you can, uh, you could, you could, remove like one strand of the web and the thing is still strong. So you can be, you can be pulling that part apart and still working on the other. Whereas the old way of looking at this um, is like, and I've heard it said so many times, like, you know, you're only as strong as the weakest link. Yeah. But it was never really, it was never that in the first place. It was mm -hmm. more like a web where it was all these different contact points. And I think it gives us a lot of freedom to, um, yeah, space and grace. I always rhyme those two words now because they're, to me, they're almost synonymous. Yeah, and they matter just, so much. Yeah. Because you have a delightfully complex God that you're trying to be related to. And so, of course, we're going to have things we thought were true. And then we will change our understanding of those things. And if that feels like a strand or two broke, that's okay. The whole thing isn't ruined. We don't have to start all over again. We just need to reweave that one space with new ideas, new conversations, new books, new podcasts, all these things that help us reconnect. And um, even at one point, for me personally, one of the most fascinating parts of the, the literal study from which the metaphor came was that if a spider had to reweave an entire web every time there was breakage, it would literally die. Mm. It doesn't have the energy. Yeah. And I thought, there's a lot of folks I'm meeting that feel like that. Mm. I don't know where to go next. It's going to kill me. Mm -hmm. And when you say, well, what, what do you still have? It's often not nothing. If nothing mm. else, a lot of them say, like, I still have Jesus. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a gosh darn lot. Mm -hmm. And then these other broken places don't mean you failed. Like, the web is designed to deal with breakage. It is built into its structure to be broken at times and then rewoven. It doesn't assume that won't happen. I don't know. There's a lot with young people where we hope that we can, you know, the other expression is to give kids a firm foundation. Yeah. We would love to give them something that would, I don't know, never change. 
as if a kid's changing faith when they become a teen or a young adult would be something we are afraid of or that means that the kid we or that we failed the kid that it had to change yeah. and we need a model that expects our young people to change and sees it as maturity and walk with them to say that's not scary and we're with you in that and even if their conclusions are different than our own it'll be okay yeah so the firm part of the firm foundation is that it's not firm but that it's okay it's okay <laughs> It's not firm. It's like really flexible and elastic, but love is with you no matter what. And can I just nuance something or push back or get your opinion too? Because you probably weren't meaning to say this. Um, and I'm not saying you did. I just, the thought occurred to me. It's like, I want to make sure that for people listening, if you're someone who, who does feel like you need to throw it all away because you've been hurt or abused or misused or whatever, I think you should have the freedom do whatever you think you need to do. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I don't, yeah, certainly. Well, that's where you were moved from metaphor to reality. And um, there are definitely times that I think people will find, oh, it's all got to go. And you start over. And, and like you said, that's where space and grace become the same thing. However long that takes to start all over. Okay. And God is with you in that. Yeah. And, ways. and your, what you said true is, two is still true. And that is that, well, what do you have? So if you feel like you need to throw it all away, I think you, yeah, you should, you should feel the freedom to do that. And then also just at some point when it's appropriate, ask yourself, well, what do you have left? And you might say Jesus, or you might say this one little piece about love or something. And maybe that's, that's what you build on. And that's what I hope we give people freedom to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. Um, I read a little bit in there about the difference between obedience and trust. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us more. What has run the show when it comes to kids and faith, especially with the rise of focus on the family and company, is that a good Christian parent raises an obedient Christian child who knows what it is to please God in their actions and their language and their tone of voice and their first time listening and so on. And then the assumption in that model has always been that somehow that obedience will pay off in such a way, they'll call it blessing or something, that will prove the goodness and trustworthiness of God who has asked for this obedience. And so you train the child because they hijacked that verse in these obedient ways and they will then learn that that obedience is indeed from a kind and loving and trustworthy god somehow they're never quite clear on how they think that'll happen but they promise it does and so then you have lots of well-meaning parents who've followed right along but we are now far enough through that model to see how it has not worked in mm -hmm. so many ways, mm -hmm. how it has hijacked a kid's process and not given them space and grace of their own, how it has misrepresented God's character as one who wants a child to keep the do and don't lists just right, and that that becomes the substance of their faith, list management. And what I advocate for throughout Woven is to flip from an obedience training paradigm to a trust-based one where we see the primary goal, if one is a Christian parent, to be 
introducing my child to God, helping them get to know what God is like so they can discover if God can be trusted, that we're in a relationship beginning, trust feeling out sort of process together. And that I, as the adult, can help with that by telling stories, both from scripture and from our lives and from our communities. I can help by providing experiences and opportunities that allow my kid to test this stuff out by creating a space where all questions are askable. And it's okay even if I, as the adult, don't have the answers. We're not looking to answer everything. We're looking to be good question carriers and so on. Um, But the ultimate goal would be, I hope you could discover if God can be trusted. When trust comes first, then we can decide what we'll do in response to that. I'm not going to do anything someone tells me to when I don't trust them, when I don't think they have my good in mind, when I don't know if they have an agenda behind what they've asked of me. And yet with kids, we expect them to do this because it's God. (laughs) And I think we need to be able to give kids more time and space of their own. And I think we need to be trusting the Spirit of God far more in how they would work in a child, yes, through us and with us, but also without us in the best way. Yeah, that's good. Did you say askable? Is that a word? I made it up, maybe. I don't think it's a real word. <laughs> it's a really good word. I like it. Um, how did you... Yeah, well, I, a question that is threaded that I've thought uh, as we've been talking, how did you come to some of these conclusions? What were some of the catalyzing things that were happening in your life, inciting incidents, uh, as it were, that were taking place that caused you to think, oh, we need to make some some shifts there? When I was in college, I was doing a lot of kids' ministry, as one does where you have all the energy and you do all the games and you're so much fun. (laughs) (laughs) But I really liked... Uh, school. Like I like and always have the sort of theology study stuff. And all the academic spaces I were in was in were very like respectful and engaged and not expecting students to just assume that the professor's right. They were how we think about this spaces, not what we think about this spaces. And that was so much fun. And at the same time, a major curriculum company came on the scene with a lot of promises about how dairy product was going to be the best thing ever. And the fundamental framework started with a like thing they wanted the kid to be honest, Mm. kind. And those are good things. All the the whole list were good things. And then a Bible story to show it, which meant the human was going to be honest or kind or what have you. And one of the things I remember is that my dad, who was the senior pastor of our church, wanted to bring this curriculum in, and I did not. (laughs) And I lost, and we brought it in. And then my first curriculum job became to rewrite it, because we were not very far in before we realized we're shoehorning Bible stories into these attributes. This isn't what the story's about. We realized that basically kids thought the takeaway was to go be good but they weren't actually getting to know God in these stories because God was not an important character. The most Mm. important thing was the person who was honest or the person who was patient. Mm. And so that was an early on shift. And then being able to be involved in some research on adolescent faith formation with Fuller Youth Institute, it was like the fast forwarding of what was happening in kids ministry. This so-called firm foundation of kids 
gave young people the lists they should manage of all they should do and all they should not do. And then they become teens and they start kind of moving into more independent, individuated life, but still thinking their whole purpose was list management. And it was no wonder that then in this research of young adults, 18, 19, 20, they're exhausted of the list management. They are afraid that God is actually less pleased with them because they have started to be not as good at managing those lists in their adult life as they were in their high school life. And I just couldn't help but rewind and realize we gave this to them in Sunday school. Yeah. It's not that the youth group culture didn't also matter or their church experience as a teen was not also shaping them. But before that ever came, we set them up in a wrong way. And that was really an early piece that felt like, oh, we got to be thinking through the zero to 12. We've always sort of thought we tell you cute stories and put up fuzzy pictures and everything will be fine. Flannel graph. Flannel graphs. And I love me a flannel graph. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but we got to figure out how we tell the story while we put up that flannel graph. <laughs> like 68% of the listenership has no idea what a flannel graph <laughs> is. So. And we're not going to tell them. They're, nope. they're going to have to look it up on their own. <laughs> But that was huge for me was um, realizing I was in the space as a kid's person looking at where our trajectory was sending young people a decade down the road and it wasn't helpful. Yeah. And and you, yeah. You said, it, yeah, you said it was exhausting. It's like behavioral management for the kid. Also exhausting for the parent. Yes. Because everything your kid does, you have to tell them if it was good or bad. You're always monitoring them to give them that feedback. You don't get to just like delight in your kid just because that that's not good enough. You're supposed to make sure they're obedient. Right. To this arbitrary list of rules. Yep. That we have called godly. Right. And often not necessarily given kids even the reason, right? That we would say that. It's just because. Yeah. It's just, it's been assumed. Yeah. You said a word that I'm, super interested in individuation. Sure. Talk about that more. I don't, I don't know if you have any, isn't that, I think it's a Carl Jung officially term, but I love that term and I never seem to get too far away from it. And I just wonder what comes to your mind when you say it. In the spaces I'm in, what comes to mind is that we, as the adults in a young person's life only have a season where it's appropriate for us to be a high input. Why don't you try what I say? kind of guide for our kids. And then they start moving in their early teen years and on into the place where it is most appropriate for them to be feeling out who they are for themselves and for us to shift our relationship to that whole dynamic to become more of a cheerleader or a available person when they would like to come, we don't get to keep telling them what to do and what to believe forever and always. And I have certainly watched in faith spaces the idea of the firm foundation, also meaning that there's this myth of perpetual parental authority mm. over a young person. We're not trying to help them become an individual and grow no. into their own self. We're trying to get them to fit the mold. And we think we're allowed to hold on to that because they're our child for I think far longer than is often appropriate because it's scary. Um, Dr. Chap Clark, whose research on teens I also found really helpful back in the early 2000s, he often talked about the metaphor of a tightrope. 
that childhood is often climbing the ladder and we're real close. We can be right there behind them on the rungs even. But by adolescence and on, it's like they're walking that high wire and we have to be on the ground. So we have feedback we can give from there. We see things. We're not up there with them. And that's good. But that oftentimes as adults, we're not always ready for it. Yeah, well, because one thing I just thought of is we're on our own high wire. Like there's a whole reverse set of things watching your kid and allowing your kid to do that. That is, it's, it's very challenging. It is. It is. And I think that's And, and we're trying to individuate from our own parents still. Like we're all growing together. Yeah. Yes. We're always responding to yeah. our, you know, early stories and experiences. And what does that mean? And um, how do we keep growing? Yeah. And welcome what? the change that comes with that. Yes. Sorry to interrupt you. No, no. I was just going to say one of the things um, I think I like about what, and the reason that I've subscribed and still have read some stuff and reached out to you. Um, I don't know that you've written about this, but just as we're interacting here today, like I'm attracted to people who are interested in giving agency to others and autonomy. And far too often, like I want to say this without being disrespectful because there's a lot of really good things that have happened in my church life too. Um, it's a whole mix of things. And so I, I'm not interested in scapegoating it, though I have very strong opinions about some of it. But uh, yeah, certainly one thing that hasn't existed a lot in American, American Christianity is the idea that it's weird because we're an individualist uh, country, a culture, but gosh, in the religious setting, it's like conform, conform, conform. I don't, I don't have a question there. I guess I'm just rambling. You know, I, I would agree with that uh, observation on the whole, that it's a, a strange uh, tension in the two parts of our context. My roots are in uh, the American Baptist tradition, which is relatively known for not having oodles of distinctives overall, except right. local church autonomy. And a big part of its culture is y'all as a church, you have the Holy Spirit and you have scripture. So Figure get on out. with it. Yeah. yeah it, it is a relatively low control culture. And that was massively formational for me personally as a young person to be in a low control church and to nice. see it work. Nice. Um, it made things funky sometimes because yeah. people have a wide <laughs> range of strong opinions, um, but it's huge to see. Like, no, you can do this without having to manipulate, coerce, ask everyone to fall in line. Like, you really mm -hmm. can. Mm -hmm. um, and even at one point, that church was relatively large, which I think often the mega churches, especially now that that's become more of a cut, cut and paste, build the machine, and so on, um, but even that, it's like, no, I've seen a church of several thousand still not be controlling. Um, That's great. That's that hard. Always, yeah. It's hard. It yeah. is hard. But I think it just, all that to say, my experience would point to the same, that um, it's a good thing to keep going after. Like, could we have communities that do this together and also commit to the fact that we don't control one another? And what does that do for all of our faith to practice that? Yeah, my own journey has been, uh, all, all these things we're talking about intersect with my own journey, but a huge piece of it is 
reapproaching the idea of God and control and hierarchy and what I call capital O omnipotence and my, my decision. I'm not saying you have to agree with this. Um, I'm just throwing it out there for people who are listening to wrestle with. Um, but I finally decided as I thought about me and my own kids and the amount of love I had for them and how I was not interested in controlling them and how actually I could not control them. And even if I, if I could control them, it wouldn't be love. It would just be manipulation. And so then I started reapplying that to God and thinking, well, how much more so with God? So I kind of don't think God controls us. Um, I think that he's the, he or she is the greatest influencer in all the cosmos and loves us uh, beyond anything we can imagine. So anyhow, all of that could form our, yeah, our faith community and our churches and all those kinds of things. So yeah, you've been on an interesting journey because I don't see that happening in a lot of mega churches um, without, because I, I don't, I don't care about the specific stories if there, if there is drama. So without getting into drama, unless it has to be a part of the story. Yeah. What's that like now planning a church and going from all of that to, Hey, we're, we're going to do what we think we should do here. I think because of uh, where U S church culture is church planting now for us, uh, that was an overt piece of the early culture that we were trying to help cultivate with this little group of friends. Um, so that meant like in practical terms, we talked with our folks early on and said, so we're going to keep meeting weekly. We know a lot of you might feel kind of tired for weekly, or you also want to go to brunch or on vacation, or it's a good beach day. And like, cool, we get that. <laughs> like, we're not keeping attendance. And we're going to be weekly because if we don't do it regularly enough, we won't yeah. grow in friendship. Yeah. And friendship is part of why any of us are still doing this. When you can listen to any preacher you want on their podcast, you can get any music you want streamed through your phone. So if you're going to keep being church, it's partially because you want some real friendship. So we're going to be here maybe more frequently than you all are vibing with, depending on how church has felt for you recently. But also, you all might not be, and that's okay. Uh, and so we had to kind of overtly spell out how the mega churches we had come from built a calendar and then spent a lot of energy rallying everyone to the date on the calendar. Here's the family event. Come, 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 come. Be there, be there, be there. And we're like, well, actually, we think the way to make it more chill is we're going to have to be frequent without the expectation that you're always here. Mm. And that way we're not always trying to rally you to the big point yeah. we've, you know, arbitrarily set on the calendar in a, in real practical terms. Um, we make a lot of jokes as a community about how we don't keep attendance or how it's good weather for a beach day or um, because we are small, which I think is likely to be true of post-evangelical church expressions um, for maybe ever. And that's okay. Um, it also means there's conversation for things like, how was your trip last week when you were totally not with us? And we can all listen in on where someone was and what they enjoyed about that because your regular life in the world is what matters. The, to be equipped to be a reflection of God in the space and place you are is what we're going for. So we want to hear about those things. It's one of the small ways that we've tried, we've chosen to sort of like point to what that value means. Like, how does it actually play out? It's like, well, we're, we're excited for what you did while you weren't with us because that's that, okay. 
Imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> that's cool. That's a great answer. And you're right about the rhythm piece of it. I think um, I think that's a healthy way to approach it. The faith community, this, these are our rhythms. You don't always have to be here, but we're. it is fatiguing and not sustainable to continually manufacture excitement about the next event, the next event, the next event. It, yeah, <laughs> which is why a lot of times the people who do that are paid to do it. Right. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, I won't say anything else beyond that, but that's great. That's a great answer. Um, how many, what, you got kids? I do. I have two kiddos, eight and 10. That's awesome. That's a great age. Yep. It's going to go by fast. All the, all us old people will tell you it's going to go by fast. Already is in so many ways. What's your, uh, what's your greatest challenge as a mom? There's a list. Probably the unifying factor is I happen to be an only child. And so I don't mm. understand so much about there being more than one of them. Uh, why it's so loud. <laughs> why sometimes when they're both such lovely, sweet kids, they choose to be so unlovely and unkind for a while um, to each other, but only each other. <laughs> like the... Uh, difference of personality and having to really try to know each of them as their own selves and be trying to be a bit attuned to their uniquenesses. All things multiple uh, take a lot of energy worthwhile, but like it is just so different than the system that I was most used to. <laughs> yeah. And I assume, yeah. And our culture has changed so much. It's like these kids are living it's probably always been true to some degree, but I'm not sure it's ever been true to this degree, how much things have changed. And I think a lot of parents are feeling like, oh gosh, I'm just learning what's going on here too, as I raise these kids. Yeah. And it's part of why I think it's a good time to be talking about the ways we do faith mm -hmm. as families, because mm -hmm. I'm raising kids in a world I did not grow up in. Yep. And I can only know some things about their experience. And then there is a lot I truly do not know about what it is like to be a kid in this world. And we've always, I don't know, the old models have a lot of assumptions about how being a kid is being a kid is being a kid. And that's just not true. There's so much that young people are navigating that we didn't have to do at all. And some of that stuff is a lot harder than anything any of us had to face down. Absolutely. I hope some parents are hearing that. Like talk about space and grace. We need to give ourselves a lot of yeah. A lot of that. Well, my partner and I, we have said so many times, it's hilarious how just in the span of one generation, our kids, how much different their life is at their age than it was at our age. Almost everything is different. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I, I didn't anticipate that. I didn't expect that. So I feel like most of my parenting journey has basically just been letting go of expectations. Yes. That's pretty much to, it. Having to lean into what really is. Yeah. When my oldest was two, she was hilarious. I could get her to, we had these whole series of things that we would do. Like I would say, um, we lived in Arizona at the time. I'd say, what do you say when you touch a cactus? She'd say, ouch. And I'd say, what do you say when you see Joe Montana? 
uh, who, who uh, for for those listening, the uninitiated is a was a was a quarterback football player. What do you say when you see Joe Montana? She'd say touchdown. I just have all these lists of things. What do you say when you see Michael Jordan? She'd say money. Okay, all of that was funny, and it lasted for about four months. And then at about two and a half, I never got her to do anything again for the rest of her life. <laughs> yep, yep. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm not uh-huh. in control. No, not in control. Not at all. Can I tell you another good story about her? Absolutely. Sorry. This is about me, apparently. When she was about that age, we lived in a little apartment. We were church planning uh, in Scottsdale, Arizona. In the wintertime, we'd have the windows open. When she would get in trouble, uh, she would start running through (laughs) the apartment saying, somebody help me, help me, just yelling at the top of her lungs. And so, of course, we're mortified that someone's going to call CPS or something. So she did that so often. She did it often enough that uh, my wife and I actually had like a little signal we'd give each other. We'd make sure the windows were closed when she got in trouble so we could chase her down and put her in timeout or whatever. Because otherwise, we figured the cops would come calling us. Have a misunderstanding about what was happening inside the walls. She's two and she's very smart and she's sinister. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I noticed John you referenced John Walton in the book so thank you yeah. for that he's been a help for me in reading Genesis same yeah who, who else uh, or anything you have to say about him but who else has been influential for you uh, theologically or scholarly or writer wise mm, it's always such a list right and so then you're hoping you give everyone credit yeah but um, I had a seminary professor named uh, Jim Bradley, who is U.S. Church History, and that class was huge because of how much space he gave to untangling a lot of myth of the Christian nation kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and even just the denominational streams and the way we've sort of become the very many shapes that we are as a country. And that was just incredibly helpful on the front end of sort of my adult faith journey to have somebody expecting you to not have uh, such a monolith in your mind or that what you experienced is what's most normative. And um, that led me to Mark Knoll, the historian who I've also thought was very helpful. Um, Like a lot of people, I find that anti Wright's work in New Testament world is very interesting, and I am appreciating the things he's bringing up. I really like John Goldengay's stuff in the Old Testament. Oh, I don't know Um, him. He is also, he's at Fuller Theological Seminary. He's he's a Brit. And so um, it's real fun to do Old Testament work with a non-American. Yeah. Because... He ain't, he ain't bringing the same biases and prejudices <laughs> that we might have been sort of culturally conditioned into yeah. and um, was already very familiar with what it would mean to do faith in a post-Christian culture. Right. And um, so he was a lot of fun. And, oh, goodness. And, and then I'm going to start getting all the tangle. We did a series as a church this last couple of years at some point called Following Their Lead. And we spent just a small period of time doing exclusively black theologians as the commentators and and theological people we drew on for a season. And I think we tried to draw across the board, but for a while we decided as an exercise, we were going to just limit to only what our black theologians would offer us. And so there's a whole list of names that came out of that time, a dozen or so who I have to confess, many of whom were new to me. And that 
also plays into PhD access and higher education costs and a whole slew of things, but it was really significant in this last couple of years to walk with theologians who don't share the white affluent U.S. paradigm that was kind of the default in so many spaces I was in. Yeah. Totally. hundred percent. That's been my story too. Really thankful for that and just fell in love with those kind of people. James, James Cone is the top of the list. I don't know if you're familiar with Will Gaffney. She's a womanist theologian. Um, James Baldwin is not a theologian, but, um, but, but could be. Yeah. Yeah. And him. even now there are some of like my peers who are writing in different spaces. Um, I think about Esau McCauley out of Wheaton mm-hmm. and um, Jamar Tisby's work and um, uh, James Burns. And just, I think they're also just doing some really great contextualizing as young up and coming academics. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, they're some of just my favorite follows. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. So that's cool. Yeah. I hope people listening recognize um, this whole yeah faith journey thing and, and also leading and influencing and uh, ugh, I don't like the word leading, but um, pastoring change, helping people change. Um, yeah. It takes a lot. And I really appreciate the schooling that you've been through and the things people that you've read and the work that you've done, because it takes all of that to write a book like woven. I mean, that doesn't just happen in a vacuum. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, it is, it's just part of how I I like to nerd out about the theology stuff and Mm -hmm. my, my one space I'm enjoying contributing to is I think a lot of this conversation is about the quality of our theology, not as some detached academic, get it right. But because we're talking about trying to represent God to the young people in our lives. And we don't have to do that with any attempt at perfection. That's not even remotely the point. The point is to try and be a faithful teller of God's story. And bad theology just makes God look like someone God is not. And good theology does not get God right. But it is more faithful to God's character. I think your point, even just about control, with which I share the sentiment, that, I mean, that is massive if you are a parent. Mm. Because if God controls, you're allowed to control. Mm -hmm. And you get umbrellas of authority in the world of Gothard and so on. And you think that's okay. Because your understanding of who God is as controlling moves into everything else. Um, And when you see God's choices to do things like self-limit and hold back and negotiate, uh, it will change what you as the adult in a kid's life also do because you want to try and be a good reflection of that. Yeah. And by the way, for those who care, those are all biblical things. Self-limit, negotiate. All of them. Yeah. Relational, all that stuff. Yeah. Even if you do them with a child. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. Or your partner or anyone else in the world. It's not easy. Yep. Not easy. Well, thanks so much for hanging out with me. I really appreciate what you're doing. And uh, people can find you where? Mainly I write on Instagram. Uh, It's my name, Meredith Ann Miller. 
Uh, I have a website that's MeredithAnnMiller.com that has then links to a Substack that I send out uh, for those who'd like more of a long-form writing. It has a link to the book, Woven, that's out now. And um, I make a podcast for kids with my kids cool. called Ask Away. And we tell a Bible story in about 10 to 15 minutes. They interrupt with a bunch of questions and observations. And that's, that's a weird. great idea. And they don't love kids' Bibles. They don't want to read Bibles. They want me to tell them to them. And they think it's fun to have a microphone. And so we make that together. And it's a lot of fun. That does sound like a lot of fun. Thanks for sharing that. Cool. Well, um, I always forget to tell the guests that I'm going to hit stop recording now. But that doesn't mean that we have to. I'm also going to say goodbye after I hit stop recording. Because that's been an awkward end at multiple, multiple times. So anyhow, for the podcast... Peace to Meredith. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. All right. Thanks for tuning in today. Find Meredith at her Substack page, Meredith Ann Miller, or just search for a Kids Plus Faith newsletter on Substack. And also just a quick reminder about the new project I'm working on called Indigo, The Color of Grief. I think... I say this, I think it might be my best writing. I genuinely think it has a chance to put a dent into the world's thinking about love, life, and loss, but I really need your help in making it all happen. So please make sure that you're subscribed to my Substack, Jonathan underscore Foster, or at the very least have clicked on the little link on my website, jonathanfosteronline.com, so that you'll be made aware of how all of that is going to unfold. All right, messy everyone. All my best. <laughs>